You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you have a Bible, um, please turn to James chapter 2 if you haven't already. And for those of you who are regular here, maybe you would know this. And those of you who aren't regular here, you wouldn't know this. But we have really been spending about the last um, year almost intentionally going through some scriptures uh, to bring us together as a church because um, we are less than three years old. In April will be our three-year anniversary as a church. So we know a few things. One is that basically all of us are new, okay? So we've been to this church less than three years. So everybody is new from the first person that came to the visitor that's here today. We also know that not everybody knows each other really well because it's only been a few years and some of those years have even been pandemic years and some of those years were like filled with sickness and maybe the present year is. So we don't know each other really well. That might not be the case for everyone because most people have come here because they have a friend or someone, some sort of a connection. But we've wanted to pull us together by looking at at some scriptures really intentionally. And so we, we went through the Gospel of Mark together, asking the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And what did that look like? And so we spent a long time on Mark kind of looking at that. And then um, in the new year, just in January, we had a short series called One Church where we, we talked about some of the practices or maybe some of the unique things about our church specifically. And now we've come to James, which is really a book that is calling us to a life of boldness. James is pushing us and inviting us and getting us to think about some things in very practical and real ways. James is, if you look at uh, the book itself as a whole, James is like a mini commentary on the teaching and the life of Jesus. And some scholars even believe it's a mini commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is kind of his like, pinnacle teaching from the Gospels. James is taking a look at that, but James is not like rehashing Jesus's teaching. So you'll see as you look at the text, there's not a lot of like um, whys to it. It's more what. This is what you're supposed to do. So James is taking Jesus's teaching and saying, this is what it looks like in practice. Here's how your life needs to look. And for many of us, For many people, especially in the West, James is like a book of confrontation. And it's a book that is um, bothersome to some. It's a book that is, you know, scholars have debated over and they don't always know what to do with it. Because it's so kind of bold and in your face. And we, many of us would prefer a Jesus who's just a little bit more kinder. He doesn't push us quite so hard. And we're like, what's with Jesus' brother James, like he's too pushy. But Jesus, you know, for those of us who looked at Mark, we see that Jesus is actually pretty clear as well. So a teaching that, that James is going to base today's section on was in Mark chapter 12, which we went through in the fall. And Mark chapter 12, 
Verse 29 says this. It's the great Shema. It says, this is the most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Talk about black and white. Jesus is saying, this is it. This is the summary statement for all of God's teaching, especially in the Old Testament, to love God and to love your neighbor. And Jesus is saying, put those into practice. So what James is doing today is really just reiterating Jesus' teaching. And he is calling us as believers to act on that teaching. Harold said last week that one of the key verses, maybe the thesis verse of James, is James chapter 1, verse 22, which says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. So James is going to push us to act on the truth that we have heard. Because for most of us, we're, we're falling into either two categories. One is that we don't know all of Jesus' teaching, and so we're just not clear on it. And so James is going to make it very clear for us. But then there's another category, which probably many of us fall into on and off, where we just disregard Jesus' teachings. We just kind of push them to the side. We either make overt choices to push it to the side or just kind of subtly do that in our lives. And James is bold enough to call us out. So I think each week should have words of encouragement to us, but it does come with like some, some heat maybe or some pressure. And so James in chapter 2 begins with some words of pressure. So if you have your Bible, let's look at James chapter 2 again, where I'm not sure what your Bible has as a heading, but he says, my heading says the sin of partiality. So verse 1 says this, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So James starts with a an imperative statement with a command. I don't know if you remember from a few weeks ago, we said that the book of James is full of these commands. And James says, here is what you are to do. Here's the what of what I'm asking you to do. Don't show partiality. Or maybe in language that we're more familiar with, don't show favorites. Don't show favoritism to certain people, to certain groups. And we live in a world Maybe now more than ever, I don't know, that's, that's maybe an overstatement, but we live in a world where we make judgments and we visually make judgments. You know, we especially live in a world of social media, something like an Instagram or, or uh, platforms like YouTube or Netflix where we are watching things. And at the same time, on some of them, we are projecting things. And I think the whole purpose of most of these is to make a judgment, you know, is to like put a heart or a like or to watch something or to, you know, be exposed to some sort of image. And we are making judgments all the time. And James is talking to people 2,000 years ago saying, your inclination, 
The thing that you are going to be tempted to do constantly is to show favorites. Or maybe another way of saying it is to discriminate against someone because of a certain aspect of who they are, what they look like, the choices they make. And James is saying, here's the what. Don't do that. Don't show favorites because it's so easy to be sucked into it. Uh, some of you may know the name Chuck Colson. That's going back uh, quite a few decades, back to all the way back to like Nixon's presidency and Watergate and all that kind of stuff. And Chuck Colson tells a story of how when Nixon was going for re-election, his job was to kind of bring people in and get them to like Nixon and, and his platform and everything you know that he stood for. And then at times there were people who disagreed with it. And so Chuck would invite them to the White House and he would bring them in and he would show them the halls of the White House and would show them all these like rooms where people would do meetings and people would be kind of in awe a little bit. And then they would have this big dinner there that they could eat and, and Chuck Colson's talking to them about all this kind of stuff. And some people were like, okay, I don't know, I don't agree with Nixon, but they would kind of get warmed up. And then Chuck would take it to like one step further. He'd be, okay, do you want to see the Oval Office? So then he would like bring them into the Oval Office and show them this like world famous office. And at times, all choreographed for certain people, President Nixon would actually be in there working. And he would greet these people. And if it was certain kind of people, it says that they would have, um, Nixon would have these gold-plated presidential cufflings that he would give to people as a gift. And they would kind of talk. And, and Chuck said, at that point, most people would just be like, melted in the presence of Nixon. You know, they've been totally prepared all along the way. And then now, even if they disagreed with him or they like stood against him on so many levels, at that point, they may say something. But because of all the lead up, they were just influenced and they were just, you know, shaking his hands and and on. Before they knew it, they'd be out the Oval Office and out the back door, essentially. And it's so easy for any of us to be not even wooed with going to the White House, but just wooed by the exterior of people or wooed by maybe what we felt in their presence and we choose favorites. And James is telling us to not do that. He even gives an example in verses 2 through 4. Listen to this. And, and scholars believe that James is not making like a fictional situation here. James is most likely talking about what's actually going on in their church. So in verse 2, he says this, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, you have not then made distinctions among, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So James is saying, this is what is happening in your midst. When you're showing favoritism to people, you're actually giving rich people, who he says later on in like verse seven or something, he's saying, these are the same people that oppress you. These are the same people that really, they don't have your good in mind, James is saying, 
Yet somehow they've come into your presence and you've like melted before them. And you're giving them preferential treatment over someone who he says is poor and maybe is dressed in shabby clothing and who you can tell you're like, I don't know if I want to identify with that person. Here's someone who has power. James is saying you will be regularly pulled in that way to show favoritism. And even for us, in our little congregation, and it's extra little today, but in our little congregation of, you know, on a Sunday, we're like 100, 150 people. It's still very easy to show favoritism. Because favoritism is easier. When someone walks in the door and you know them, or maybe they look like they would be someone who would be a good friend, isn't it easier for all of us, if we're just honest, to just strike up a conversation with that person, to show that like little level of favoritism, rather than doing the hard work of going to someone who is new, or maybe to someone who looks different than us, or maybe you can tell just by like the exterior that they would choose a different lifestyle than you. It's so much easier to show that. And James says that kind of, that kind of judgment call he says there in verse 4, that kind of distinction is being judged by evil thoughts. And James is just throwing it straight out there. He's saying it. And it's all the way back in verse 1. And it's, again, he's not like taking a lot of time to explain Jesus' teaching. He just kind of tucks it in there. So verse 1 again, if you see that, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. James says, do you know who we worship? We worship the Lord of glory. This is Jesus. We just were reflecting on what Jesus has done on the cross for us and all that he is. And James says, the reason why we don't show partiality is not because we're more, you know, we're braver and we can talk to people that are different than us. It's not because, you know, we're just like so much better than everybody else at doing that kind of a thing, though you might be or you might not be. James is saying the reason why we do that is because we worship the Lord of glory. Jesus is so magnificent. Jesus is so good. It allows us to be secure in making choices that we maybe would never normally make. Jesus is more than just like, you know, like a spare tire or something. We all have spare tires that are in our car. They're in the trunk. We hope that the air pressure is good because we haven't checked it in years, okay? We're just assuming that it's back there. And the idea with the spare tire is that when you get a flat tire or when there's some sort of trouble with your tire, you can pull over, you can jack it up or somebody can who knows how to do that, and you can change it and put it on and away you go. And sometimes that's how we view Jesus. That's as far as we'll take Jesus. He's only, he's kind of there, he's in our back pocket, just so that when trouble comes, when I really need him, when I'm up against like some sort of decision in my life where I, I'm at a loss, I know it's going to come someday, I've got Jesus. Spare tire, he's there waiting for me. And James says, with that kind of a mindset, we will naturally make evil judgments, as he just says. But when Jesus is the Lord, Lord of the universe, when we understand him to be who he is, 
then that allows us then to, to realize that the relationships, the choices that we make that would go against our natural inclination, we can do that from a foundation of security because we have the, most, the greatest gift ever. We know Jesus. We will know and experience him for eternity. And so James says, don't show partiality. And make that choice out of a security of knowing who Jesus is. He is the Lord of glory. But James goes on. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So James, in, in the book here, there's going to be a few times where James addresses the the nature and the challenge of wealth. He's, talk, he's going to talk to us very bluntly about wealth and what wealth can do. And now here he's saying, listen, what God has actually done in this world, the way that God works in this world is primarily working through the poor in this world. Again, not what we would naturally think. But here he says what God is doing is working his purposes and building his kingdom primarily for through the pure. The, sorry, the pure. The poor. He's working through the poor. And the reason why this is such a hard teaching is because wealth is tempting, isn't it? I could probably get an amen from everybody. Wealth is tempting. Like we all uh, want to have at least enough money to kind of buy the things that we want, to enjoy life, maybe take a trip to, I don't know, Iceland or New Zealand, you know, do something kind of nice. Um, everybody, you know, they always say, like, we just want, like, 10,000 more than what we have. That's all we want, you know? I wouldn't ask for more than that. I don't need 20, I don't need 50, just kind of 10,000 more. And then once we get to that 10,000, we're just like, I just want 10,000 more, okay? That's all I want, just 10,000 more. Wealth is tempting. It, it gives us a sense of ease. It gives us power in many ways to make decisions in our lives, and that is tempting. But it's also tempting, James is going to teach us, it's tempting to bring that kind of a mindset into our walk with God and into the religious life. Harold talked last week about how religion is not always a bad thing, but in some cases, religion in itself can be a bad thing, especially when we view it in this kind of transactional way. So I do good, and God's going to give me back good. And so Paul says in Romans that, you know, we're all guilty before him, but in Romans 3, he says, the religious person says, I earned this. I did good. I did what you asked me to do. And we bring this kind of wealth mentality to our walk with God, and we think, I have earned this, God. I've been kind. I even helped someone across the street. You know, I didn't cut that person off. I did all these good things. I banked all this money. Now I get, I get like something good, a relationship with you or even goodness in my life. So James is saying that kind of a mindset creeping into your walk with God is actually the world's mindset. James is saying the way God actually builds his kingdom is through a mindset of poverty. It's through a mindset of a, a lack of resources. The Apostle Paul in 
1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29 says this, and these are really important verses. They're, they are verses that should and rightfully do challenge us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. In verse 29, here is the key. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul is reinforcing what James is saying here. He's saying this is how God works in the world. He takes the things that are weak. He takes the things that are not like on display and magnificent. That's how he actually builds his kingdom. That's how he builds his people. So throughout history, the church has grown in places where wealth has been missing where poverty has been the driving force. And so even this week, I was looking up some statistics. Um, now, this is research from 2015, so it's a few years old, done by Pew Research on the, the spread of religion and Christianity specifically. And basically, here's a few things. Atheism is, at best, stagnant or not growing at all. Okay, so that's kind of, it is flatlined globally, and it's, they're guessing over the next few decades it will actually shrink, okay? So atheism is going to shrink. In our world, it seems like that's the, they're the winners, right? They're the, driving, they're the driving force of all, like, great ideas. Well, on a global scale, it's shrinking. In 1900, the, you know, the greatest number of Christians was in Europe. And now in the last 100 years, that has completely shifted Africa soon will be, within a few decades, home to 1.3 billion Christians. Can you believe that? 1.3 billion Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. Latin America, estimated to have 686 million Christians. Asia is going to have 560 million Christians. And Europe is still going to have a little less than 500 million. And North America will have less than 300 million so we'll be living in the continent that has the minority of Christians. And the rest of the world, mostly you can see that, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Asia is where the poverty is the greatest, and this is where the gospel is spreading. And this is what James is saying, that the way that God has actually made his kingdom to work is that something happens when people are in poverty. People are poor. There is an openness. There is a readiness to see God work, to hear God work, and to accept God's work in people's hearts. So, what do we do with that? Because this is also an invitation. And we are sitting here, most of us, I mean, I don't know how much any of you make, okay? I'm not going on any information that I know. But I'm just guessing that most of us are in the category of wealthy. We all have somewhere to live. We all have a vehicle or access to a vehicle. We, many, most of us probably have jobs or we're in school. 
from a global perspective, we are wealthy. And the scriptures don't say that you have to give every, everybody, every Christian should give everything away and we should just all enter poverty. It doesn't say that. Actually, it says in, in chapter one of James, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, that you know, there's still like wealthy, there's wealthy people that are believers, but they have this ability and they have a perspective of poverty that they can bring into their lives. And that's what James is actually encouraging them to do by practically helping the orphan, by practically helping the widow. So how do we do that? Let me just mention two things. And the first is this. We are encouraged through, throughout Scripture to give, to give of our finances. And so James here was saying in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, if there's orphans, if there's widows, you should use your resources to help them. So if you are, you know, you're like a millionaire or you're a multimillionaire, that's, that's great. Use your wealth to help those who are in need. And if you're not even a millionaire, if you're just like making 50000 or 70000 or or 100000 use what you can. Enter into poverty by taking this money that you have and giving it to others and showing them that you can actually be a blessing to them and you can help them. Throughout Scripture, it says, give your finances. In the Old Testament, they were encouraged to give 10%, which was a great starting point. But you see, even in the Old Testament, they gave more than that. And in the New Testament, there's no like 10% requirement. Paul teaches in Corinthians, give freely, with liberty. Like as the Spirit is leading you, whatever that is, give. So that you are not like tied down to the, to the money that you're earning to the money that you're collecting in, in your bank or in your stocks, you give it freely knowing that you can enter actually into this life of poverty through the giving of your finances. So we give, but secondly also, we become poor in spirit. So if, if James is a commentary on Jesus' teaching, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount, if we look at that teaching, we see that it begins with this very beatitude. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how Jesus starts his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now what does that mean, poor in spirit? It means to be consciously, to, to give of your own decision making, to enter into the decision-making of God, essentially. To, to give your life to what God has for you is to be poor in spirit. And so we're called in Scripture to a life of poverty, even though we may not live on the street with nothing. We're actually called to enter into that so that we will experience the provision of God as the greatest good in our life. So... James says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Then verse 6, again giving an example of what they've been doing. But you have dishonored the poor man, ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. So James says, Enter into this poverty and don't bring this wealth mindset which will entice you to actually make judgment calls about people. 
And so even for us, let me just say this for us. For those of us who have come to Citizens Church, some of you came choosing to enter into a church plant. You knew that this was a church plant, so you said, I want in. Some of you have come just because you've come to this church, and we're so glad that you have come here. So now maybe the question for us is, this same kind of boldness to trust Jesus, which James is saying is kind of starting with their finances and how they treat each other, but it goes into the choices we make in life to enter into the vision of this church. For those of you who are in a missional family, to to take that step of entering into the fullness of what a missional family is. Or maybe to to serve here on a Sunday morning, to step into the fullness of what that is and to put into practice what James is saying, this boldness of following Jesus. Okay, lastly here, in the last section, starting in verse 8, James addresses this idea of mercy and judgment. James says this in verse 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, do not murder. You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So here, James is reminding them of the religious mindset that they were used to. Most of his audience was most likely Jewish uh, believers. And so in their minds would have been this religious mindset of following the Jewish law. And so they're very used to kind of doing things a certain way to, to please the religious leaders and to please each other and hopefully please God and also kind of downplay some of their own mistakes. I can remember one time getting a speeding ticket. It's the only time in my life that I've had a speeding ticket. And I was going... Um, close to Southampton, and I was driving outside of town, and it was kind of a a wooded area, but it was, this was the, I was going like close to 100 because I thought I was outside of town, and then just as I'm coming around the corner, I'm sure this has happened to you before, at the last minute, I saw the cop kind of hiding behind something, right, behind a sign or something, and then I was like, what's the speed limit here? You know, that's what my first thought was. And then the lights came on, and he pulled, o- pulled me over. And I was, like, a little nervous, okay? This is my first, like, North America ticket. I think I was pulled over in Africa before, but that's different. Okay, that doesn't count here, okay? But I got pulled over, and so I'm trying to make excuses, and, and no, nothing worked at all, okay? And so I got my ticket. I don't know what it was, 100 bucks or something. But every time I've told that story, and I've told it a lot of times because a little bit my sob story. You know, I've always got like some excuses. I was outside of town, so I thought, you know, the speed limit had changed and I didn't see the sign properly. Um, it was my only ticket. You know, it was my, fr- I'm like, I have a clean slate. I tried to use that on the police officer. It didn't work, okay? <laughs> you know, he wasn't gracious to me at all. But I was trying to like find all kinds of excuses and make it better than it was. 
And James is saying, this is what they were doing as believers. They were trying to make excuses for themselves. James is saying there in verse 8, you know, if they follow Jesus' teaching, that's great. They should be doing that. That's the calling of every, every believer. We just read that from Mark 12. We're all called to love God and love our neighbor. But yet he's saying, you're showing partiality. You're showing favoritism. And in their minds, it was like, no, that's just like, those are just excuses, right? Those are just like, those things happen. I didn't see the speed limit. You know, this was my first ticket. They're like, come on, give me a break. And James is saying, listen, it doesn't work that way with God. When you break the law, James is saying. So he's comparing then, showing favoritism to the examples he chooses are adultery and murder. Can't you hear the people in the audience going like, James, come on. These are two totally different things, man. Murder and showing favoritism, they're different categories. We're like, we're Jewish people here, James. We know how this works. Some are more important than others. And James is saying, no, this is how it works, actually, in God's economy. All of us stand guilty before God. We have all broken the law, whether in one of like what we think is the smallest thing or something that we would think is the biggest thing, like murder or something. And James says, here's the conclusion that, that God has about each and every one of us. This is the, the straight-talking James. Every single one of us stand guilty before God. We stand in judgment before God. Look what he says there in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged. James says, keep that in mind. When you are showing favoritism, when you are acting out, you know, the, the actions of what you think it is to be religious, all of us stand before God as judged under sin. But James doesn't leave it there. And the scriptures don't leave it there. They, they're not just there to kind of make us feel guilty or have us walk out with our head down. I remember one time we had a neighbor come and visit us, visit our church, and, and after I was kind of curious, you know, that they weren't Christians, they were just there visiting, and I was like, so what was it like? Like, what was your experience? I always like to hear that perspective of someone who hasn't, you know, been in church at all. And she was like, well, it was, it was pretty good, like good music, and everybody seemed pretty nice, and, and it just had like a little bit of guilt in it, you know? And I was like, okay, that's an interesting little assessment, you know, just a little bit of guilt. James is not wanting to lead us here just to leave us with a little bit of guilt, or even like a lot of guilt. He's just telling us what it is. Here we are as God's people. We stand under his judgment. We have broken the law. But James doesn't end there. James says, as those judged under the law, verse 12, the law of liberty. And then he goes on in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has been shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says, listen, we are all lawbreakers. And when we show favoritism, when we give the person with the rings and the gold, the best seat in the house, and the person who is in poverty and just is so different from us, 
And we don't even like talk to them or go near to them. James says when we do that, even in the most subtlest of ways, we all stand guilty before God. But James reminds us that there is mercy for us. God's mercy is there for us. And so in the Old Testament, and Harold was just sharing this before, it's awesome how it all ties together. In the Old Testament, all the laws are there. I don't know when the last time is you read Leviticus. All the laws are in Leviticus, like do this, don't do this, don't break this law. But God gives to his people in the Old Testament the Day of Atonement. A day where the sins of the people would be covered by the sacrifice of an animal. And the blood would be spilt to cover the sins of all the people. Even in that law, that that view of judgment, God brings in mercy into that situation. And then in the New Testament, we're still under that law. Whether we know the law or we don't know the law, our consciences bear witness that we are under God's judgment. We have broken his laws and we have brought into the story, into the narrative, a, a covering that is of eternal significance. Jesus is life. And Jesus comes and he lives and he dies in our place. And so James reminds us that the reason that we are called not to show favoritism is because of Jesus. And the reason why we aren't trapped by wealth and all that it can do and all as lovely as it looks is because of Jesus. And that all of us stand under the judgment of God, every single one of us, and the only way to experience the the law of liberty or the, the love that is expressed in this universe is because of Jesus. And so James is calling us here in this passage to something that maybe we're, we're not really that good at or not really that comfortable with, and it's the idea of repentance. And I'm not sure what your understanding of repentance is. Some people don't like that word. It's got you know, some bad baggage to it, or maybe you just don't like the idea of it. But repent is really just to change direction. It's just to, to choose to go a different way. And on Friday, uh, I was in Toronto, and I don't know if you remember Friday, it was like bitterly cold. Like it was like minus 30, right? I felt like, to me it felt like minus 50, okay? But I think the wind chill was only just minus 30 or something. And so I was walking in Toronto, and I had, I've got like a scarf that's, uh, 30 years old, it's an old scarf, really nice and warm. So I had it like around my neck and I had my jacket zipped up and I was toasty warm here, but my face was like a frozen popsicle. Have you ever had that before where you can't really move your face properly anymore? It was just totally frozen. And so Liz was like, why don't you take your scarf and like cover your face? And I was like, what should I have done? I should have just instantly been like, yes, you are right. I will do that. But no, I was like, no, I'm good. You know, got my scarf around my neck, the heat's in the jacket, and I'm walking along. Maybe I lasted one more block, and then my face was about to fall off. And so then I was like, okay, I need to do that. So I took it off, tied it around my face, you know, even though my glasses were totally fogged over, and I actually felt better. Repentance is hard. Even when it's coming from someone who's like, you know, got your best in mind. Liz is like, come on, just tie that thing on your face. That's all you got to do. And in the best of circumstances, we would all just respond instantly. Yes, I will do that. I will do the right thing. But repentance is hard. And so James is inviting us 
And he's going to be inviting us throughout the whole book to experience the the benefits and the joy that comes with repentance in turning to Christ, who is the greatest good and who will change actually us from the inside out so that we don't practice things like James is saying, the, the, the sin of showing partiality to our neighbor that God has called us to love. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage and the, the reminder to, to not show partiality, but more than that, Lord, to put our hope and our trust in the mercy that comes from Jesus and the fullness of what it means to know him and to experience joy in his presence. Amen.